All right. Remember, it's a little more sparse. It just means more eye contact for you who are here. So get ready for it. <clears throat> As we've worked through now and Mark for a little ways, we've seen the religious leaders, the powers at B coming to Jesus are about ready to switch their tactics. This will be the last move they make at Jesus, trying to entrap him in some way, turn the crowds against him, really trying to shut him up. After this, they'll turn to a sham trial and move in a different direction. But after the priests failed and then the Pharisees failed and the Herodians failed and the Sadducees failed, now the scribes come to Jesus. So a scribe is going to come and bring a legal question, a legal uh, topic up to Jesus. Although it's a little different in this passage than what we've seen. It seems like it probably started as another way to trap Jesus, but it turns into a much more meaningful conversation. It seems that this scribe, unlike the others, does not have murder in his heart. There is not pure hypocrisy. And so Jesus is going to engage with it differently. He's actually going to answer the question, and we will see that taking place. As we've said, each time in these confrontations that take place, It informs us of Jesus Christ in this Passover week heading to the cross. That indeed that is where Mark is taking us. But also in each confrontation we learn something about Jesus Christ. And we, for the church, receive it. We are given wisdom. We are given instruction to build our faith. And so once again, we'll see the question in the context. And then the church of God hear it and be instructed in wisdom and faith. All right, so he comes in chapter 12, verse 28. The scribe comes to Jesus, and he asks a question to him. He says in verse 28, One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Now, this is not an unusual question, something that the scribes would, uh, rabbis would be ready to ask or to answer. It seems to be an impulse, even in the Old Testament writers, that they want to sort of summarize the teaching, summarize the commandments of God into a single statement and lay it before them. You think of Micah at the end of his writing, what does the Lord require of man? but to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly. You think of Solomon at the end of Ecclesiastes. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, keep his commandments. This sort of impulse to summarize what has been said. And so the question comes to Jesus. And as we said, instead of turning it back with another question or or giving a quick rebuke like he has done in the past, Jesus actually goes along with it and he offers an answer Jesus is going to respond by quoting from the Shema. Shema is Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'll read from Deuteronomy 6, a few verses. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind. These words I command you today, and they shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. The the Shema would be, this Deuteronomy 6 passage would be for the Jews like John 3.16 is for us. 
that kind of passage everybody knows and everyone is aware of. In fact, in the Jews, they would quote from the Shema in their liturgy, in their daily prayers would begin. And so you hear this summons, Hear, O Israel, it's their call to worship. The Lord our God, He is one. And it launches in then to their prayers that they would rehearse again and again. And it, it takes for the people of Israel and directs their attention, all that is within them, their whole heart and mind to the Lord. And not a cosmic impersonal force, not a higher power, but to a personal God. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, as we saw last week. It is this personal God that, that they are drawn to. And so the commandment, they hear the summons to come. And so Jesus answers, and you see back in Mark, verse 29, Jesus answered, the most important is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love the neighbor, your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And so Jesus, as he answers, goes to Deuteronomy, would be the Jewish creed, and they would think, yes, that is correct, that is right. He then goes to another passage that would have been very familiar in Leviticus, this idea of loving your neighbor as yourself. Again, something that the scribe would have known, undoubtedly. Any of the, the religious people of that day would have known that text and would agree with it. And yet, Jesus does something here unique. When we hear those together, we're used to hearing that together. In fact, when we heard the law today, we heard those two together. That is the summation of the law, the summary of the Ten Commandments. It is the great commandment. But it's really Jesus here for the first time putting these together. He puts together these two statements. And in doing so, he... He shows us there's no real legitimate division between the two of loving God and loving neighbor. That there's a correct order to them. You love God, number one. You love neighbor, number two. And doing the first, loving God with all your heart and soul and mind will necessarily and consequentially lead to the second. And so he answers them this way. Before we continue, we, we've got to look at this for a second, application to the church. The great commandment, what, what does the Lord have for his church? How does he summarize his law to us with this, that we would love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength? I don't think that it's dividing up different ways to love the Lord. I think he's just saying with all that is in you, with your whole being, Everything about you, all of your energy, your ambition, your intellect, everything centered upon God. Your ambitions, your motives centered upon God. Not that he is peripheral, not that he owns part of your life, but that your heart would be wholly set ablaze for our God. And then that we love our neighbor as ourselves. That we would understand it's inconsistent to confess love for God and not to confess love for neighbor. If you remember in the, 
in Luke, the story of the Good Samaritan. The Pharisees come up, and again, they're trying to entrap Jesus there, and they ask Jesus, uh, what must I do to be justified? Jesus answers with the summation of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And seeking to justify themselves, you remember how they respond? The question we often respond, well, who's my neighbor? I think that's an important question for us to consider. Who exactly is our neighbor? Listen to these words by Chesterton. He says, the old religions and the old scriptural language showed so sharp a wisdom when they spoke not of one's duty towards humanity, but one's duty towards one's neighbor. The duty towards humanity may often take the form of some choice, which is personal or even pleasurable, but we have to love our neighbor because he is there. A much more alarming reason for a much more serious operation. He is the sample of humanity which is actually given to us. Precisely because he may be anybody, he is everybody. This idea of loving neighbor is thrown around often. We like the idea of it. It sounds kind of, we can glamorize it. It's, yes, love your neighbor. It's politicized even, that you decide, okay, which group is my neighbor, and I'll use it for a political agenda. I love this group, love this group, love this group. And it becomes sort of, we just bant around, and in this, when it's just in the idea of theory, I think we all agree But what's actually a lot harder than loving humanity is loving the person in front of you. (laughs) As he says, that sample of humanity who is there, your your co-worker, the person who actually lives next to you, has the apartment next to you, the person who rides the bus with you, the, the one who comes into church and, and engages you in a conversation, the person in need who you actually pass. You see, that's harder because that person, when it's not just theory, they can be kind of annoying or exasperating or hard to love, and it actually takes time. And, and so instead of thinking of the idea of loving your neighbor in the terms of, well, who's our neighbor in and, and this grand thing, Like, who has God actually brought into your life that you are to love? That's your neighbor. And so in summarizing the law and the great commandment, he gives us these two things. We would love the Lord our God with all that we are, holy, that we would love neighbor as self. You see how the scribe responds. Verse 32, the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. This isn't him grading the answer. This this is him exclaiming his agreement. Like, what an answer. That's great. But then he goes on even more in verse 32. You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the, the heart and with the understanding, with all the strength, to love one's neighbor as oneself... In fact, it is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. What insight from this scribe. He's right. This isn't new to him. I mean, you read that in multiple places in the Old Testament. You see it in Hosea chapter 6, for sure. 
but sent to entrap Jesus, and here he agrees with him, and, and you see this insight, a certain spiritual nature about him, that he, he agrees with Jesus and adds to it. This, this is more important. It's more important than tradition. It's more important than religion, than sacrifice. And Jesus' answer to him is really an ambiguous answer, I think, then we're meant to consider Verse 34, and when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to them, him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You are not far from the kingdom of God. You think that, that in there, there is a, an encouragement, for sure. There's an invitation, I think, and there is certainly a warning. He, he's wise. He's pursuing the word. He, he understands at some level the Old Testament. He understands that this inward relational aspect towards God, towards others, is more important than outward tradition and form. He understands these things. He is close to the kingdom. And yet he is not in the kingdom. He is decisively separated from the kingdom. We're reminded as we've gone through Mark with Jesus Christ, there is no middle ground. There isn't, Jesus is a good guy, I'll kind of follow after him. There isn't, yeah, I take some of what he's got and leave some other. Either you're in or you're out. The parables teach us that. You're in or you're out. The call of discipleship teaches us that. You're in or you're out. And he sees this scribe and his morality and his understanding of the law and his wisdom and says, you're almost to the kingdom. I think we all want to hear that for ourselves as an encouragement, an invitation, a warning. Jesus is going to clarify then what separates from being almost in the kingdom and being in the kingdom. He'll do so in verses 35 through 37. In there he's going to quote Psalm 110, the psalm that Brian read for us as we begin our time together. So he answers, no one dared to ask any more questions to Jesus. That's really a cap on the last, you know, they've fallen woefully short in their questions. No, they're done asking questions. So now we're going to have a little bit of Jesus just now he's going to start preaching. In verse 35, as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? All right. Can you listen? And he's going to quote. Why, why is this a bit of a riddle? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, see Jesus' view of Scripture there, David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? The great throng heard him gladly. So, so the Jews know that the Messiah would be a son of David. That's common knowledge. Jesus isn't trying to convince them of this. This is something that they all assume. That a Messiah would come who would be of the line 
of David. But the question is that David here calls the son Lord. And how could this be? So you think the Jews, David as their king, their kingdom reaches its pinnacle of of glory and power and insight, majesty under King David. It would be the golden era for them. And there is a promise made in 2 Samuel. And the promise is David's going to have a son who will reign forever. He, He will be the king forever. David has a son. He has Solomon. And it looks good for a while, but Solomon doesn't live forever. He dies, and so they're still awaiting, okay? But it's from this line. Then after Solomon, you remember, the the kingdom splits underneath Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And slowly, or not even slowly, pretty quickly, it begins to disintegrate. The moral fabric, its worship, its ethic, it just falls apart. The bottom falls out. Their power, political clout, they're taken into exile. And you just see it starts to just fall apart. So the people look for and they long for, we want the return of the glory of David. Remember how the kingdom was then. There's going to be a Messiah who's the son of David. And as the kingdom falls apart, both Israel and Judah look for that king They hope for that king. There's numerous texts that speak of this. You think of 2 Samuel, you think of Isaiah 9. The Christmas text, one of our Christmas texts of of the one who will come and reign on the throne of David. Jeremiah talks about someone from the branch of David coming and reigning on his throne. Isaiah 7, someone who will sit and reign on the throne of David forever. And so the people are thinking, okay, we want the son of David. In fact, you see that anticipation even with Jesus. If you remember in Mark 10, as Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem and blind Bartimaeus on the road calls out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Or when he arrived, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem at uh, the Palm Sunday event, as it were. And as they hail him coming, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is our father, David, calling him David once again. So Jesus goes to Psalm 110 and poses this question. Psalm 110 is the most often quoted or alluded to Old Testament text in the New Testament. The New Testament quotes it the most often, 33 times. And as you go through it, you see that in Psalm 110, there is certainly a, as we've seen with the prophecies, a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. Psalm 110 was used as a coronation hymn for the king. It would have been sung at the time of an earthly king being coronated. It happened for Solomon. And so they, this uh, song would have been sung. And yet, you, as you see it, you see that the scope of Psalm 110 far, goes far beyond the scope of any earthly king that Israel has enjoyed. The glory, the grandeur, the majesty of it is pointing to something further. And so it is indeed a second fulfillment of a messianic king. A king to come. The problem is, is that the people are expecting someone to come 
and take the throne of David. That is just to continue the line of David, to reestablish the earthly kingdom that David had here, to bring it back to its earthly glory. So Jesus, to push them beyond that, goes to Psalm 110. And in here he says, okay, here's our conundrum, Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. As you read that, if you see in Psalm 110, the first Lord in there is all caps. The Lord, it's all capital letters. The second Lord is lowercase letters. This is because it's two different Hebrew words that in our English translation just both get translated as Lord. But the first one in all caps is Yahweh. The sacred proper name of God, the great I am, the way God identified himself to Moses when he was getting ready to lead his people out of Israel. I am who I am, the eternal infinite essence of our God, his proper name. The second Lord in lowercase letters is Adonai. That's more of a title, that he is the supreme, he is the sovereign one. And so what he's saying here really is, Yahweh said to my Adonai. If you go to Psalm 8, a psalm we often use in our worship, it says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have the same thing. O Lord, O Yahweh, our Adonai. O God, our supreme one. How majestic is your name in all the earth. In Psalm 1, it's different though or I mean Psalm 110, it is different here though, because the first Lord and the second Lord are different people. It's not God the Father, it's not Yahweh talking to himself. So who's he talking to? He's talking to David's Lord. And then as you go on to Psalm 110, you quickly see what he's talking to is the Messianic King. And so the son of David will truly be a son of David, but he will also be David's Lord. And how is this the case? And so Jesus brilliantly here in this passage assures us that indeed he is the Davidic son, but he is also the son of God. That he came in the line of David, he took on human form, he became the son of David, but he has always been the son of God. He has always been the begotten son of God. It's a claim to his deity. And it merges the the idea of the messianic king and the suffering servant and the son of God all together that in the person of Jesus Christ, he is those things. He is the king that they need. But he is also divine. He is also the Son of God. The kingdom that he will establish is an altogether different kingdom. It's not a return to political power or might. It's not simply the throne, an earthly throne of David. But as the Psalm 110 tells us, it is a throne that is ascended on high at the right hand of God the Father. Where he will put all enemies, all people in subjection to himself. So Jesus is pointing ahead. This is what is coming in the next couple of days. For us, we look backwards on it, of course. But what's coming with this sham trial? What's coming with the beatings and the lashings? 
what's coming with his suffering and, and collapsing under the weight of the cross, what comes with his death and the crushing weight of becoming a curse. All of this is part of his final victory. All of this is part of his exaltation and his ascension to rule at the right hand of God the Father in session as king, as our mediator. So we turn to the return to the scribe. The scribe is getting it right in a lot of ways. He's close to the kingdom. But here's what he's missing. Is that the Lord that he is confessing that he must love with all his heart and soul and mind is standing right in front of him. It is Jesus. He is David's Lord. He is the Lord. You must confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's what is missing for this scribe. That's why he's so close. He's on the right path. But he needs to see and he needs to realize this is the Son of God. It is Jesus Christ that I love with heart and soul and mind. It's not enough just to love a divine being. But it's got to be in and through the work of Jesus Christ. Listen to Psalm 1. Or, I'm sorry, Romans 1, verses 1 through 4. It says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And why is this confession of Jesus Christ as Lord, as the Son of God, so important? Because the summation of the law is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. How many of you have done that for one whole day? That may sound beautiful, but it's condemning. Just like the Pharisee who went to Jesus and said, how can I be justified? And God lays that out. Then do this and be justified. That's a sentence of condemnation. Because not for one moment, even in your greatest strivings and greatest attempts, has your whole being been completely centered upon God? Have your motives, have your affections been burning with a passion for God? Have your actions and, and everything that you are directed towards Him? Let alone loving our neighbor as ourself? Man, we do like one nice thing for a neighbor and we got to like post about it on Instagram and take a week of me time to recover from our generosity. That word's not a word of hope. How have the scribes dealt with it? Well, they do two things. They first, they ask, okay, let me see who my neighbor is and how I need to love my neighbor because maybe I can keep that commandment and be justified. What have the Pharisees done all through Mark? How do they keep the law? Well, they keep the law by saying, okay, love the Lord your God without your heart. Well, how do I do that? Well, there's a bunch of laws set up that show us how to do that. But 
How do I keep those laws? And they keep getting further and further away from the point by creating new traditions. The word Mark uses, traditions, traditions, traditions. So that by the end, let's just use Sabbath as an example. Have no other gods before you. Love the Lord your God. How do we do that? By keeping the Sabbath holy. Well, how do we keep the Sabbath holy? By the end, for the the Pharisees, they keep that law perfectly because they have decided to keep the Sabbath holy isn't to set him apart as Lord and be holy focused upon him. It's not tying your shoelace more than twice on a Sunday. If the latch of your sandal breaks, wait till Monday to fix it. They get all of these traditions that they can actually keep. Therefore, they can say, I have kept the law. This scribe at least gets it. He goes back to the heart of it. It's loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Loving your neighbor as yourself. But he hasn't seen that Jesus is Lord. And his only way that that word becomes meaningful and a blessing to him and not simply condemning is if he puts his whole faith and trust in Jesus Christ who as the son of David took our place and as the son of God fulfilled the law perfectly. That in his active obedience, he loved the Lord his God with all his heart and soul and mind. And he became man, born of Mary, the line of David, in order to do that. But he has been God from the beginning. And his death is redeeming and perfect so that his active obedience is accounted to us. His passive obedience or his death on the cross is accounted to us. And it is putting our faith solely and wholly upon Jesus Christ as Lord. That's how we enter the kingdom. People were glad to hear it. They still don't quite understand it. Listen to Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let me just leave the text with you this morning as an encouragement, an invitation, and a warning that you would look away from all your efforts and all your strivings, all your attempts at being justified by your love for God or love for man and realize they fall so woefully short and put your faith wholly and totally in the finished work of Jesus Christ for you. That's what it means to belong to the kingdom. That's what it is to be a child of God, that his work, Jesus Christ's work, is accounted for you. And then, resting upon his accomplishments, that is your only hope in this life and in the life to come. Then how does the law function in our lives? And By the Holy Spirit, let's give attention and striving that our whole being would be focused upon God, that that would move necessarily into loving one another. Might Jesus Christ be praised and glorified for all of it. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word.